All right, everybody, this is Andy. I'm here on my own, but Sean should be here any moment. He is uh, on the bus. Uh, but I am here with Mitch Abador, who is a historian of anarchism and the revolutionary left. Um, and he has a book out uh, this year, uh, The Notebooks of Victor Surge in His Last Years of Life. And so we're going to talk today about Victor Surge, uh, who this guy was. And uh, I have always found him to be one of the most compelling figures in the history of revolutionary socialism. And I think today, when a lot of people are discovering socialism for the first time, trying to figure out where they fit in the the story of surge and his politics is really uh it really resonates a lot with me and i think it'll resonate a lot with our listeners who perhaps haven't heard of him so thanks for being here mitch abador it's my pleasure um why don't you tell me a little bit about uh your work and how you got interested in victor surge before we talk about his life and and the book sure uh i'm a, primarily a translator and i've translated Somebody did a count, about a 1,000 documents from French, Portuguese, Esperanto, Spanish, Italian, for the Marxist Internet Archive. Mm. Mostly, though, from French. And my particular interest is like the, the great moments in French revolutionary history, like the Paris Commune and uh, 1936, the, the Popular Front in May 68. But I also have a great affection for French anarchism. And so Victor Serge was somebody who, like for many people, he was just kind of out there for me. And then a few years ago, maybe more than a few, I found a book of Serge's anarchist writings. And so, and I just absolutely fell in love with them. Uh, it was, in French, we call it a coup de foudre. It was love at first sight. Mm. And that led me to, to go, you know, deeper into Serge and... Uh, so that's how I ended up, and through these translations, these writings from the early 20th century, like around 1909, 1910, which had never been translated before, Richard Greeman, who is the person responsible for bringing Victor Serge back, who's translated almost every one of his novels, uh, saw my translations, he got in touch with me, and we've worked together ever since, and we together did this translation of the notebooks from 1936 to 1947, the last 11 years of uh, Serge's life. So Serge, I think, is primarily known for his uh, literary... It's, 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 mo it's fiction, but it's a very uh, accurate fiction, right? Right. Um, I, I guess his uh, most popular book would be Memoirs of a Revolutionary. Is that right, right? right, but that, would, that one's not fiction. That, you know, uh -huh. That's his... Uh, that's, if, every, if people have read just one Serge, that's the one, because it is probably one of the two or three great memoirs of uh, revolutionary life in uh, Europe uh, in the 20th century. Because Serge was, as you said, he was a novelist. So he has a novelist's eye for even political and historical facts. And so the book, uh, doesn't matter how well you know the story, he tells everything so well because Serge also knew everybody personally. Mm -hmm. So you get... Uh, in his memoirs, you get the life of the individualist anarchists in the early 20th century. You get the life in the uh, backstage at the common turn. You get the arguments about Kronstadt as Kronstadt occurred. Mm -hmm. So all these events that you know have haunted uh, left-wing history and leftists of a certain stripe 
for a century are all in this book. Yeah, and this is what makes Serge such a compelling figure is that he comes from an anarchist background uh, and then he goes to Russia when the revolution happens and becomes a, a part of the Bolshevik regime. Right. And if that sounds like it would be a contradiction, it was. It well, was not well, easy for him. Well, actually, you know, what I, the way I like to tell the story is Serge lived in many different countries. He was a perpetual exile. And in fact, he had no citizenship in any country probably at any time in his life, except for maybe a brief period in the, in the Soviet Union. And what's, what I find particularly fascinating and uh, important about Serge is, with every country he lived in, with every move that he had to make, for usually for political reasons, his, his political ideas changed, were different in each uh, case. So, for example... He was born in Belgium from a family that was related to somebody who had participated in the uh, assassination of the Tsar. And so he very early, as a teenager, as a young teenager, was part of the socialist youth movement and the Belgian uh, Workers' Party. But his parents were Russian. His parents were Russian. Mm-hmm. His parents were Russian. And he was very attached to that Russian, uh, that Russian heritage. And I'll tell an interesting story about that when we get to his, se- his second country. So he's in Belgium, and he's in the uh, youth movement of the Belgian uh, Workers' Party. And they quit when the Belgian Workers' Party came out in support of the annexation of the, the Congo. And the, he and his closest friends, many of whom would then become uh, members of the anarchist uh, criminal gang, the Bonneau Gang in France... Leave uh, the the Workers Party and they bec- they form like this anarchist cell. It's not clear how or why, but in 1909 he leaves Belgium for France. We don't know whether he was expelled. We've never been able to find any records of it. But he could have been expelled, and, or maybe he wasn't. And in any event, there he becomes involved in individualist anarchist circles. So he's moved already from socialism to individualist anarchism. And just quickly uh, explain what individualist anarchism is. Sure. An individualist anarchist believes that of there are many schools, but in uh, Serge's case, it was the revolution is not going to happen if you're going to depend on the working class. The working class is a hopeless, degenerate mass of drunks, and they've been degraded by capitalism to expect anything good to come of them is just to be living in dreamland. And I actually have a, I have a book called Anarchist uh, Never Surrender that's got many of his writings from that period where he expresses these ideas. And so an individualist would believe that the individual can make his own revolution. In some cases, it would be through committing crime. In some, it would be through political violence. And in some cases, just living a free life you know, regardless of bourgeois strictures and the and bourgeois rules. And that's, you know, Vic Serge was kind of like at the crossroads of all of those. So he becomes an individual standard because it becomes really important in those circles. And he and his uh, companion, uh, Rirette Maitre-Jean, they run the best uh, anarchist, individualist anarchist newspaper in France called L'Anarchie, which was spelled with all lowercase letters because all letters were equal. <laughs> and uh, it's there that they, that they spend time with the people who would then become the murderers and crooks of the Bonneau gang. 
cut the story a little bit short, when the Beno gang is either arrested, is, goes on trial, those who are already killed, Serge is, on tri- is put on trial with them, and his Russian background shows up in, you can see pictures of the trial, where he's wearing a Russian peasant shirt. Mm. Uh, the other defendants mocked him for it. They thought this was all just, you know, Serge showing off. He wasn't yet Victor Serge, but uh, the, they just thought it was a silly spectacle. Anyway, as a result of what went on with the Beno gang, which was responsible for the deaths of people that were killed in holdups and shootouts with the police and killing police, Serge ends up going to jail. And in jail, he just he has, wants to have nothing anymore to do with, he says he wants to have nothing anymore to do with the individualists. When he's released after five years, he goes to Spain, where he's now an anarcho-syndicalist. Mm-hmm. So his politics have changed. And th- these were the two main tendencies of anarchism at this point, the, uh, the social anarchism, the, the syndicalism or anarcho-communism. Right. And these, exactly. At this point, massive unions of millions of workers were right. in these anarchists. They may not have been anarchists themselves, but they were in these unions. Right. And then there were these uh, individualist anarchists who believed in propaganda by the deed, right. and robbing banks, and um, a lot of them were more or less like uh, – uh, Dillinger type figures who just had fast right, cars, right? Like, like and the Bonogue gangs, yeah. Like the Bonogue Um and really the they were eventually it came to a point where they were almost directly opposed to one another because one was trying to win strikes and win public sympathy, and the other was sending bombs around and that that sort of thing. Well, well, you know, it, it's actually you know this, this it's a complicated history because like the bombs and, and things happened when there was no mass movement. You know, and so the you know by the time of the growth of the CGT and all that in in France, individualism is like a dying movement. In the United States, the bombs right. and the mass movement happen at the same time. Right, exactly. Yeah. Right, uh, including people like Sacco and Vanzetti. Mm-hmm. So uh, anyway, so so Serge goes to Spain where he's an anarcho syndicalist, and he becomes involved in a in a general strike. So now we we have his third country, his third politics. While he's in Spain, the Russian Revolution takes place. 1917. 1917, and he becomes enthusiastic about it. It's a complicated path he has to take to get to it. He goes back to France, from which he's been banned. He's part of an exchange, and he finally makes he makes it to revolutionary Russia. He then becomes uh, uh, an apparatchik of the, the Comintern, the Communist International. Working, uh, he's under Zinoviev, who would later be killed in uh, one of the one of the purges, and so now he's in his fourth country, and he's got his fourth different politics. So he's turned his back on individualism, turned his back on anarcho-syndicalism, and now he's a Bolshevik. So, what was it like uh, to be an anarchist in Russia in like seventeen to nineteen? Because it, it, there wasn't the, the the suppression of anarchism didn't come until a few years after the revolution. But you know, you had the you know the Makhnovtsi, the uh, the rebellion in the Ukraine from uh, Nestor Makhno. It was it's a, that's a really good question, Andy, because Serge's uh, actions in Soviet Russia at this time and his writings are, I think the least attractive uh, element in his, in, his, uh, in his history because I'm working on, with Richard Greenman, I'm working on a biography of Serge. And to do that, so Serge wrote all kinds of articles addressed to anarchists, saying he was a Bolshevik but of a libertarian kind. 
And he talked about how, you know, the liberty, the freedom that anarchists had. But anarchists, if they really wanted to be anarchists and accomplish anything, they needed to become Bolsheviks. And many people listened to him. They should even move to the Soviet Union or Soviet Russia at the time. And because this is where anarchism could be uh, implemented in a real way. However, and then you have uh, a couple of years later this Kronstadt. But so he's writing all these articles. And anarchists do have a certain amount of liberty, not as much as people would really like to believe. And, but while he's writing these articles, and anarchists are listening to him, and they're going to move to Soviet Russia, there's, he's visited by a number of anarchists from Spain, from Italy, and from France, and he's writing articles saying how wonderful it is, and this is a great place, and the anarchists are also be coming here. But when anarchists visit him, He's telling him, this place is awful. Mm. Get out of here. Mm. It's a horror. It's terrible. And you really should not be here. So all this stuff was published in anarchist papers in, uh, in uh, Spain and France and in, sub- in memoirs by uh, anarchists from all these countries afterwards. And they've not been publicized except in a, a book called, uh, in, in English it would be, uh, Victor Serge, the double man. And it's all about the duplicity of Serge during this period. Mm. And he was absolutely, positively a liar and a hypocrite during this time. Absolutely. He, there, there was all the propaganda when the Kronstadt Rebellion took place, which is when the sailors who had been like key to the victory of the, Bolshev- of the revolution in 1917, the Bolshevik Revolution... They rise up against the Bolshevik government, saying that it's become dictatorial. It's not what we fought for. And so the Bolshevik government issues all this horrific propaganda about the sailors and soldiers at Kronstadt. Serge knows it's all a lie, yet he writes articles about why Kronstadt needed to be crushed. This is really interesting to compare to Emma Goldman's disillusionment with the Russian Revolution. Right. Because she gets exiled from the United States, goes to Russia, and she writes this it's a great book. I recommend right. checking it out. Uh, she comes in with a very open mind, really hoping to find a revolutionary society that she can identify with in some way. And through talking to as many people as possible, and really, you know, she was treated with a lot of respect initially, and then seeing what happened around Kronstadt firsthand, she comes away saying, this isn't my revolution. It wasn't just yeah. dancing that she needed for right. a revolution to happen. But Serge had a lot of the same opinions as her, but also kind of just became part of the exactly. state. And interestingly, when Emma Goldman was called in with Berkman to negotiate with the, the, with Kron- with the people at Kronstadt, and the negotiations were held in uh, Serge's father-in-law's uh, apartment, and they specifically said Serge couldn't come because he was a Bolshevik, mm-hmm. so he had like, no place there. Uh, so, so, but anyway, but he, but he's, but he's a good, loyal, dishonest, sneaky Bolshevik at this time. But when when Lenin dies, and then there's like the battle between you know Stalin and Trotsky, uh, he becomes very early on a follower of Trotsky. So we could call this his fourth, or fifth. So he's socialist, anarchist, anarcho-syndicalist. Bolshevik, and now opposition Bolshevik. The left opposition. Left oppo- left opposition, he's a Trotskyist. And for his troubles, he gets sent to camp in uh, the Urals. 
So now he's got, uh, he, but he's still in the Soviet Union. So, but this is his fifth different po- uh, uh, political position. Although he might say that going from Bolshevism to Trotskyism, left opposition, is really just the same thing. It's the only honest one. But, and then he's very lucky. And it's while he's in, to go back to what you said before, Andy, while he's in the, the camp that he decides that he needs to be a novelist. That this is what's going to save his life, his mental and physical life. He's going to be a writer. And though he doesn't, can't write right away, although, I'm sorry, he does. He writes a novel about his days among the individualist anarchists. And the novel has been lost. Mm. It was turned over to the uh, Cheka, and nobody's ever been able to find it. So, but so, but he, so he begins his career as a novelist, but then he's very lucky. And he's one of the few people who've been, who been sent to the camps. There's an international campaign to get him released. And he was. What year is this? This is 1931, 1932, somewhere in there. Okay. And he, so he gets sent. So he first goes to Belgium, and then he's able to go, uh, to, go to France. Oh, this is 36. Well, that's, that's a little bit right. Because he, he was arrested first, and then, uh, and then at some point he was, uh, he was one of like basically an early victim of the purge. Is that right? Right. And uh, Andre Gide, Gide. I don't know how to pronounce. Uh, Andre Gide. No, no, Gide. That's right. He took, that's Gide was one of the people who was involved in the campaign, and it's the first entry in the in the. Uh, but he, but he had written stuff before that. So uh, so Gide was one of the people because Gide had written a book about his visit to the Soviet Union which was a pretty critical book. I mean, this is significant because at, at this point, you if you were a, a communist, you were not critical of the Soviet Union. You were oh, not no. critical of Stalin. Oh, no. And even and it, the as the purge warms up, as intellectuals and writers start getting arrested, a lot of the communist writers, the like you know the, the bohemian literature and art scene around the world is very communist. This is where some of them start to break off and question what Stalin's doing. Right, and it, and in many cases, the the for example, if uh, I, I don't even know if Gide's book has been translated into English, it must have been. It's called "Return from the USSR," and if you read it, it's just really mildly critical. But that was it. I mean, he was a snake in the grass, and there was nothing to be said for him, just like uh, any writer who wrote anything mildly critical. This is uh, Sean jumping in for the first time here. Uh, There's, I think, a semantic slippage in English uh, when we use the term purge, because there was a purge from the party, which happened... From the very beginning, you know, that right. the Bolsheviks, right. Bolsheviks and the working class seized power. And that's what Victor Serge was caught up in. And then there's what we think of as the great purges, where you would not just be purged from the party. You would also be either brought up on charges in a trial, maybe a show trial and executed most of the time. Um, or you would just be summarily executed or sent off uh, to a labor camp somewhere. Right. So, Sir, so Victor Serge was fortunate, I guess, in a way that he was part of this early 1931 purge that wasn't yet the bloody great purge well, that we know about. Actually, he was sent, you know, the, the, you know, the, he was in the, like the first iteration where he was sent to a camp. And, but he wasn't, it wasn't yet the period where they were killing everybody automatically. Uh, so it was like a pre-gulag. They're right, right. It was called an isolator. Was what he was sent to. So, uh, so he manages to get out before things really. I mean, as bad as they were, before they're really horrible. So he's he now goes. Uh, he's now living in in France, 
where he becomes critical of Trotskyism, which he sees as becoming ossified and just weirdly dogmatic, and Trotsky interfering in or mixing in in absolutely everything that's going on in the opposition and taking really bizarre positions. So, and Trotsky keeps warning him, stay out of these fights. So now he's uh, in a, yet another country, and so he was in the, arrested in the Soviet Union as a Trotskyist. He's now in the West, and he's dist- he, he still loves Trotsky, still admires Trotsky, but he's no longer such a Trotskyist. So then finally, when uh, the war uh, breaks out, he tries to get to the U.S., get out of France, so that he won't, you know, fe- rightfully feeling for, fearing for his life, both from communists and from the Nazis, should they, uh, should they get him. And so he, try, he wants to go, his first choice is to go to the U.S., and Dwight MacDonald, the great critic, uh, strives mightily to get him a visa to the U.S., but given his background, he's not getting to the U.S. Mexico, which, it's, you know, it's sadly not a well-known enough fact, but at this period was probably the most generous country in the world for accepting uh, exiles. And so Serge gets a, a, a visa to go to Mexico. And he, he, when he finally gets a, a ship in 1941, 40, 41. Uh, a year after Trotsky is assassinated in right, Mexico. Right, right. By and, Stalinist. Right. And he, get, he goes, the ship that he travels on, the Paul Le Maire, includes as his fellow passengers Claude Lévy-Strauss, the great anthropologist, André Breton, the Pope of Socialism, of surrealism, rather, um, Wilfredo Lamb, the great Cuban painter, surrealist painter, mm-hmm. Anna Segers, the German communist writer, and it's just an amazing ship that he's on. I saw a movie this year. I think it's right. called Transit. Transit. Uh, it's a. It's about um, what it was like in Marseille in this this period before the Nazis had taken over France, where right. it was just all of these political figures and artists and intellectuals and writers just in Marseille, in limbo, trying to get out, going through these complex bureaucratic processes. And the really interesting thing about the movie is instead of setting it in the 1940s, like 41, they they set it in the present day with uh, present day outfits and technology. So it's it's, uh, very jarring to see that. And, you know, it's based on a novel by Anna Segers, who is waiting? For, who it's the, the story of her wait to get on the boat that she got onto with Victor Serge. Ah, so Serge so, was on that right. boat. Okay, and so the novel is now they they didn't she didn't know who he was, mm-hmm. and in the notebook he's got some very unflattering things to say about her. Oh no, because she was a hardcore Stalinist till the day she died. She was one of the great writers of the German Democratic Republic, and. At one point, in fact, when they ran into each other in Mexico, he confronted her on a bus about her politics and the things that she'd written about him because, well, he was not a member of the Communist Party. He hated Stalin. She was a communist. But anyway, so, so now he gets, to, so he gets to Mexico. And that's, this is where his politics become, I think, as interesting as his politics in his individualist anarchist days. Because the exile community in... Uh, uh, Mexico, when you read the notebooks, an excellent book, I have to say, 
excellent. Even if I hadn't translated it along with Richard <laughs> Greenman, I would say it's an excellent book that needs to be read. Uh, because the picture, his portrait of life among the exiles is, is really an astounding one because you have all these exiles from France, from, uh, from Spain, from uh, Belgium, from all over the world, from Germany, from Austria, and they're living in Mexico, but they're not really living. It's just like a notional. Mexico is the backdrop for their lives because they're living totally European lives, Interested strictly and solely, politically anyway, in uh, Europe while they're in Mexico. And so all the disputes that uh, leftists are so well known for, they carry all these arguments from Europe to, uh, to Mexico. So now that he's in Mexico, which is going to be his final, his final country, Serge starts to, be, to question some of the notions uh, that you know, motivate uh, leftist activity and all the the theoretical back uh, underpinnings for for leftist activity because everybody there is taking their their ideas. If they were in PUM, you know, the opposition communists in in Spain, they're still following all the the same line. Uh, Communists are still communists. Trotskyists are still Trotskyists. And they're arguing all this stuff as, as if World War II is going to result in the same revolution that World War I did. And Serge comes to realize as the war, because he makes, he makes crazed, totally cockamamie statements, you know, in, in the notebooks in the early part of the war, when he's still a prisoner of all the old schemas about what's going to come out of, you know, war leads to revolution, working class power, and blah, blah, blah he begins to see that this is not going to be the likely outcome. The twilight of the century. Right, exactly. And so I just want to read a a really important passage, I think. And this is something he wrote in November of 1944. And he was going to constantly going to meetings of, of the exile community. So this is November 25th, 1944. Many socialists continue to pose problems in strictly tra- traditional, if not routine, terms. The schemas they have in mind are those of 1917 to 18 and even of 1871, as if events were going to repeat themselves. They could re- repeat themselves fragmentarily, but the entire context being different, the big picture will be profoundly different. The extraordinary power of tradition attaining a kind of blindness, also taking into account the painful difficulty of mastering a new situation full of pitfalls and disappointments. The spirit of, investiga- of objective investigation retreats and gives up rather than advancing towards discovery it is not certain of being able to master in which it foresees may put in question the former foundations of its faith. And the situation becomes an... Serge does not hide his questioning or, and his doubts about the future. So that whereas all the people that he's with are convinced that you know, the working class is going to seize power, the revolution, socialism, all, all this is going to follow on the war, just as it did after World War I, he sees the working class as having been crushed and defeated. And those who aren't crushed and defeated are so enthralled to the communist parties which, he, of course, he doesn't consider a revolutionary organization, that there's no hope to be expected from him. And this is a really dramatic shift because he had lived his entire life basically 
everything he had done for decades based on this premise, the certainty that there was going to be world proletarian revolution. Right. And right. this is, I mean, this is the history of revolutionary socialism. Right. And World War II is, is the break where it becomes apparent that that optimism is misplaced. Right. And, and where it becomes, and this is where there's like, a, it's controversial amongst scholars of Surge, all five of us, <laughs> um, about w what he believed in these final years of his life. Because the, the acrimony uh, towards Surge on the part of all the other exiles, somebody, actually it was Richard Greenman, recently sent me some letters from one of the German exiles to Surge, and they're really quite horrific. I mean, the name-calling, and it was, well, it's the left, so what else is it going to be? <laughs> but it's really at a, the stakes were so low that, of course, the acrimony was just out of control. I mean, these were people who were thousands of miles from anything. So, of course, that's when it becomes even worse. That, you know, the least ability you have to change the situation, the more important it becomes to change that situation. Anyway, and, but Serge... It's clear, I think, when you read the notebooks, that he's willing to, to give up on the notion of revolution for the moment anyway. And that in the given circumstances, it's not happening. And that what's needed is to recognize the importance of democracy. And in other articles that he wrote in the last couple of years of his life, he talks about like a socialist-leaning uh, system is the best that we can hope for. And that's really the best because he's also hysterically, hysterically anti-communist. I mean, for course, that all through the notebooks are passages about people he knew that he was friends with, who he spent time with, who had all been executed. Is he, um, is he anti-capital C communist or? Capital C. Not C. Well, not I, I, I see he never gave up his, his love and admiration for Trotsky and for Lenin, but whether he continued to believe that that line was going to carry on, I don't. Th I think that by the end of his life, he realized that wasn't happening either. But his hatred of the communists was really was well. It was typical of like say a George Orwell. It was very much like an Orwell who admired Serge tremendously. I was going to say when I was going through the history of Victor Serge that um, there's two figures that really jump out uh, in terms of the the fiction uh, aspect and in terms of influence going into the uh, post-war period. George Orwell, of course, jumps out. Uh, and then the other one, of course, is Trotsky, right? You said that they were mutual admirers of one another and colleagues and comrades. Uh, it's interesting that Trotsky, perhaps it's the circumstances, uh, the structures, perhaps it was the force of his personality, but Trotsky manages, unlike, say, Bukharin or Victor Serge, to have a movement called Trotskyism that coalesces and then eventually um, uh, ossifies around him. There's no Sergists out there. Right. Um, so Orwell and Trotsky seem like almost they're synthesized within this Ver Victor Serge character who can not only create, you know, incisive political theory and analysis, but also be able to write literature at the same time. Right. And, and you know, because Serge all through his life, given all these changes in his in his political viewpoints, he's kind of like a a freelancer of radical thought all the way through. 
that even though he was a member of the, the Bolshevik Party when he was in the Soviet Union and he was an agent of the Comintern, that's the only time that he was ever the member of a, of a party. And for somebody who, you know, who's a part of a, you would think that he's a, a movement that's based on the party, yet he's, never, he's not a member of a party after the 1920s. And although when he finally dies in Mexico, it's, uh, he's buried uh, Pum, the members of Pum who were in Mexico managed to find him a, a, a grave site where he's buried among Spanish uh, uh, radical exiles. So anyway, so he, but so he, he has a really ugly break with the exiles. And it's, like I said, very acrimonious that the name calling, even in the letters, is just is really quite uh, frightening. And the person who he hates the most, and, and I don't know if hate is, might be a strong, too strong a word, but I'm not so sure, is the writer Jean Malaquet, sadly not very well known in America, and if he's known at all, he's best known as Norman Mailer's mentor. He was the person who Mailer looked up to the most was Jean Malaquet. Malaquet was refused to budge on the working class was going to seize power, the revolution was going to take place, and the disagreement with Serge became really, really unpleasant with letters exchanged that uh, really are not pleasant to read. And the backdrop of a lot of this... Uh... Ramon Mercator, Trotsky's assassin, is is still in prison, and uh, they're negotiating his release. And it's all it was always an ugly situation in Mexico between the the Mexican Communist Party and the the left oppositionists there. Right, and, and you know they you know the communists uh, tried to you know would when these independent leftists, the exiles, would have their meetings, the communists would try to to break them up. Mm-hmm. And so, so Serge had reason to to fear for his life and not to be fond of the communists. But he also came to believe, that especially in France, publication of his novels was being blocked because the communists were the large, single largest party in France after the war, the Parti des Fusillés, the party of the executed. And they had 25% of the vote in the immediate aftermath of the war, and they really ruled the roost uh, culturally, and uh, there, was, there was no left other than the communists. They even controlled those, the unions as well. Right. I mean, the and CGT they just was, uh, vic- been victorious in the resistance against Nazi occupation. Right, right. And, and, and like I said, they, they were the, part, the Parti des Fusillés. You know, they're, they're martyrs. Everybody knew their, you know, the history of martyrdom. At that point, people were only people on the right were talking about how they tried to get the party newspaper made legal when the Nazis uh, occupied, first occupied Paris. And, you know, Maurice Torres, the secretary of the party, had been considered a traitor for fleeing France and moving to the Soviet Union during the war. But the, the glories of the resistance really covered up all that. Serge really hated the communists, and there was a really uh, important French philosopher named Emmanuel Meunier, who edited a magazine called Esprit, and there's an interesting correspondence between him and Serge, because Meunier, like most uh, intellectuals, was a man of the left. And even though he wasn't a communist, given the choice as Sartre, you know, around this time between America and the and the Soviet Union, there was really no question. The Soviet Union was infinitely preferable, and working with the communists is what you had to do. And Serge wanted nothing to do with this, and expressed this in no uncertain terms. Uh, so anyway, but but he you know at the to go back to his life, he was really poor. 
So he's living in Mexico. He's doing proofreading or typesetting. I, th- I can't remember which one it is. It's typesetting. Uh, and living off his writings, you know, for small newspapers and magazines in America uh, and in Mexico. And he's so poor that there's one document of his that I translated that it was a, an article that had never been published. And there were blanks in my translation because he was too poor to be able to afford a typewriter ribbon. Mm. And he, so he finally, in 1947, he dies. He has a heart attack. He's only 57 years old. dies in the backseat of a cab. And there were holes in his shoes because he also couldn't afford to resole his shoes. So, I mean, it was... So Serge lived, like, the life of a... You know, the itinerant revolutionary at home, nowhere in the world, or everywhere in the world, depending on how you want to look at it. So it's a big question, but why doesn't Victor Serge become, at least in the Anglophone world, uh, why doesn't he become the George Orwell? Why, did not, why didn't he become the Trotsky, right. the kind of bearer of this left opposition tradition? What? Okay. Very good question, John. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Very good. Thank I, you. I, I like that. <laughs> Nobody's ever asked me that one. And the second part... That's what I'm here for, folks. So remind me if I forget the second part. Yeah, the sure, first sure. part. The first part is actually pretty clear, I think, because Orwell is, you know, unabashedly anti-communist, has no sympathy for uh, uh, for any, anything really... Uh, he, he mocks radicals, you know, his best book, and I think it's one of the great political books of the 20th Wigan century. Pier. Right, The Road yeah. to Wigan Pier, where he, he makes fun of leftists with their sandals and their shorts. Vegetarianism. Right, vegetarianism. And whereas Serge never stopped taking revolutionaries and revolution seriously. So he doesn't read like the, uh, the, the, the critic, the kind of just dismissive critic of, of radicalism uh, that... Well, certainly of communism that Orwell is. I mean, Serge could never have written Animal Farm. Might have been able to write some of 1984. But, you know, a book like Animal Farm, the the whole spirit behind it was totally alien to Serge. And that even though he's critical of of, uh, the Soviet Union and of revolution and revolutionaries in his novels and becomes more and more depressed and depressing as you go along, uh, he... He just doesn't fit into like a book like I'm sorry, a book like uh, Comrade Tulayev. I don't know if you, if you guys have read it, but it's my favorite of his novels where he's even finds good things to say about Stalin. I mean, he was a man who hated Stalin beyond anything, but he recognized that Stalin had once been a revolutionary, and that in Stalin's mind he still was a revolutionary. That what he was doing was wrong and criminal and was betraying the revolution, but can't deny him his revolutionary past. Orwell never would have accepted, accepted that. Uh, so that's why he never got the audience of, uh, of, that an Orwell could get, because in the, in the Cold War, he doesn't fit into either camp, that he still remains you know, between two horses. Now, why there would never be... Uh, he couldn't be... A Trotsky is... Precisely because there was a Trotsky, that it's, he's so difficult to classify. And there's like humanism in his work, and there's still like, I, I've written, I wrote somewhere, I can't remember where, that the, at the end of his life, 
he had gotten back to many of the ideas of the beginning of his life, well, ideas of freedom, which really are totally irrelevant to a good Bolshevik, and certainly somebody like Trotsky, who the only reason why he didn't get it, he, that, that he was a Stalin who didn't get a chance to kill everybody. And uh, so, so but, but Serge believed, came to believe in democracy and freedom and the individual. And I think that also shows up in his taste in literature, which was good as Trotsky's was, Serge's was better. Let's, let's get into a little bit more about the relationship between Serge and Trotsky. Sure. Um, because I guess the schematic background of that is uh, after the death of Lenin, um, there's these factions within the Bolshevik leadership. Uh, there's the, the right, represented by Bukharin, uh, Sean's favorite. We'll do a Bukharin episode one day. Please do. Uh, and there's Actually, the... Bukharin started in the left opposition, but, you know, go right. on. And the left is represented by Trotsky. And then Stalin kind of takes the center position and aligns with the right against the left. And the left gradually throughout the 20s falls out of favor until they're kicked out and exiled and sent to gulags, the ones who aren't exiled. Um, so so uh, Serge and Trotsky are really in the same camp. But Trotsky envisions the left opposi uh, opposition throughout the 30s as becoming something to replace Stalin's Communist International, and that becomes the Fourth International declared in 38. And in the lead-up to this, Serge and Trotsky have these uh, epic letters back and forth debating uh, the nature of this Fourth International. And um, my, uh, my very basic understanding of this dispute is that Serge really wanted there to be an emphasis on party democracy, on uh, this the democratic aspect of democratic centralism. Whereas Trotsky really, I think he was still in the, the mindset of the Red Army commander who was going to be this unitary leader of the Fourth International. And in the end, that's what the Fourth International becomes, is the Trotskyist movement, where it didn't have to be the Trotskyist movement. It could have been the, the international of the left opposition with Trotsky as a part of it. But it, 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 you know, the, given the nature, given, given who Trotsky was and what and everything about him, there was no way it was going to ever be anything but what it what it was. Right. And and I, and I think that it's it's where uh, where I say with like Trotsky was a Stalin who never got a chance to kill people. That you know he decided who was a Trotskyist. So whereas the Poom in Spain, the the party wait the Workers Party of work of Marxist unification. That's with, the part that Orwell was a part of, or right? Fought that with. Orwell fought with their with their with with their forces in uh, in Barcelona, and that's where he was wounded at the front. And their entire leadership was murdered by the Stalinists as Trotskyists. But, for, for, but it's not sufficiently known that Trotsky did not support the Poom, that there was this minuscule Trotskyist party that was the party that Trotsky supported. And it's in the correspondence between Serge and Trotsky where, I, I think I mentioned it before, Serge keeps telling Trotsky, do not get involved in these ridiculous fights because there was something like eight Trotskyist groups and none of them could have had a minion. They couldn't have had 10 people mm -hmm. for those not of the, of the Jewish persuasion. So yeah, Trotsky is, is like treating them as if like they're major parties. And so the whole movement was just, you know, lost from, from the start. And I just want to read something that, he, that uh, Serge wrote in 1945, because even though he had split with Trotsky politically, they, they, they still remained, uh, they still corresponded. And when, Mex when he gets to Mexico, he makes sure that he sees Natalia 
as often as he can, Trotsky's wife, and he goes to the house in Coyoacan, which he calls the tomb of Coyoacan. Mm-hmm. And he writes, tomb, after a visit to the house, to Trotsky's house where he was killed. The ideas of the revolution are dead. The hammer and sickle has become emblems of despotism and murder. The victories of the Civil War are dead. The heroism of the revolution is covered in lies. The intellectual works are destroyed, unknown to the world. The old man was killed in the next room. The press is closed to us. Publishers place our books under lock lock and key. Uh, And so he goes along. We speak of agent provocateurs and assassins. They survive. The old man's assassin is doing well at the penitentiaria. Buys paintings, pursues his studies, dressed with care. So for him, it was like... Trotsky is the, the Trotskyist movement was nothing but a dead man walking, and they refused to to accept that and change with the times. But that was in the nature of of Trotsky. It's fascinating because it looks like what Victor Serge is looking back to is a another moment in history, uh, pre nineteen seventeen where you had a relatively diverse set of indigenous uh, socialists and communists and anarchist groups uh, all throughout Europe uh, and in Asia as well, and and obviously the the New World, um, which, of course, those are subsumed after about 1919 by what they call Moscow Gold, uh, the, the Comintern basically suppressing these very, very kind of diverse and interesting movements, uh, like parts of the KADP in uh, Germany, what we are now called the Council Communists uh, in, uh, in the Netherlands and certain parts of the Italian Communist Party as well. Though, those, again, indigenous groups, communist parties or groups, um, had different lines. They, and you can imagine a way in which you could have had a more democratic international that arose, a third international out of that, that could have taken these different aspects in different places and decided sort of collectively and internationally on what direction to go in. That seems like the surge vision, which, which is opposed to, as you said, this top-down Trotskyist vision of replacing uh, this one bureaucracy of the common turn right. whole cloth with a new one. Well, you know, because, I mean, the Fernando Claudine, the former Spanish communist. He wrote a two-volume history of the Comintern, and he traces everything to the 21 conditions. You know, there were 21 conditions for Communist Party to be accepted and to join the Comintern, which also meant, since it was the Soviets who said it, well, then you immediately fell under Soviet dictate. So And had to follow the Soviet line. Had to follow the Soviet line. Especially in foreign policy as the 20s go on. So, so yeah, but, you know, the, the thing is... And I think even for for Serge during that period is gold is like was a factor, but I don't know how big it one it was. It was they were the ones who succeeded. You know, they were the ones who succeeded. And, you know, over the course of, you know, my life, I've been involved uh, in communist parties and known people in communist parties in many countries. And it was it was really success. Like even, you know, in the 70s and 80s, you know, people who thought that the Soviet Union was was paradise because it was the place where the the working class, they, they said, was in power. I mean, I remember an Arab worker in, in, in Israel telling me that. And he thought Stalin was great because the only people he killed were enemies of the working class. So so it's success, you know, has it, it lures people. And since nobody else was able to win, everybody else just said, shut up. 
So that spirit of uh, sort of democratic internationalism, there were various reasons for why it didn't arise and why Trotskyism was a better fit, you would say, for what people were trying to do at this point, this dissident communism that was going against Stalinism? Oh, well, you know, it was, I mean, in my humble opinion, and I'm being sarcastic because none of my opinions are humble, is the whole thing was irrelevant. That there was, you know, that if you look at, at, at the various movements that sp- uh, that sprung up after Stalin took power, you know, Trotskyism fails dismally, you know, all along all the other movements. You talked about Anton Panikuk and, you know, the Council of Communists, that doesn't get anywhere. And then uh, after World War II, when Sartre tries to set up a, a, third, a, a third-way party on the left, that goes nowhere and in a real big hurry because, in fact— there was no left except for the Communist Party. And I think and that was what, what, what Serge recognized at the end, where when he said the working class was no longer going to be capable of doing anything, it's because they were under the – because they were – the Communist Party really controlled everything. And the Communist Party, if it didn't want you know, a, a revolution to win in Greece or wherever, didn't want it to win anywhere. So, so there was no hope for anything. But like I said, Serge, his position was too – Subtle and, uh, I guess subtle is the word. There was no, like, this is how it's going to be. And so you can't rally behind somebody. Because if, you know, as I, so now we've gone through, if I counted up, whatever, seven, whatever many political points of view Serge has had, how do you rally behind the man who's willing? And when the circumstances change, he changes his opinions. And that's an admirable trait for an individual. For an organizer of a party, a little bit more difficult. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, Trotsky said something similar to uh, uh, some of this, like, surge twilight of the century pessimism kind of thing in, uh, in defense of Marxism. Because, of course, when he, when he finds the Fourth International, he says, look, this, this, is go- this party is going to lead the working class. World War II is going to, like, destroy the fa- fascism, going to destroy the Soviet bureaucracy. Uh, the working class is going to be left looking for leadership, and that's going to be us. Right. And, um, and you know, like twenty people were there at the fa- founding right. meeting. They were like, "What? Is, Trotsky is crazy. This is not going to work." But he talked to them like he was a military commander, right. like rallying his troops. Uh, but elsewhere in defense of Marxism, he admits, "Well, well, you know, if the revolution doesn't happen, then that's going to be the end of civilization, basically." Right. He right. calls it the, the, the slow eclipse of civilization in which this bureaucratic apparatus, either fascist or Soviet or imperialist or some combination, is able to basically suck up what remains of the workers' movement, integrate it into a post-war order, and that's just like the last gasp of the last chance. So Trotsky, I think, he, he kind of agrees with this pessimism that Serge comes to, but knows it's their last shot, that there is a chance the war could level things out. Right, but you know... If- Trotsky was in many ways like the great Blanqui. The revolution was always a week from Thursday. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so like in 1936, when uh, Leon Blum, the Popular Front government, is elected, and there's all the occupations of, of factories, and, you know, they, there's all this popular, this popular uprising, uprising that was really, like, beautiful and moving and stuff. Trotsky writes, the French Revolution has begun. And... If you read not just the communist press of the 30s, even you, you read scholarly works of, about the period or works from the period, 
the workers were really happy to get their 40 hour work week and to get their their paid vacations and all that but they weren't occupying the factories for socialism which is what Trotsky thought they wanted better conditions and you know the left way too often and I think this is the real lesson of Surge is that at the end of the life he stopped doing it takes their dreams for reality and Surge at the end of his life had come back from that that he had to face reality as it was. And this is why I think that he matters today, which I think is how we started. Uh, but, uh, and, you know, pe- people usually ask me, where would Serge have gone had he lived beyond 1947? And somebody at one of the events I did for the, for the book, like, cut me off and said, Mitch, do not answer that question. And he was right. Because he could have, as, you know, after 1947, you have the common form, and then you have the purge trials again after the war, which are really insane. We have this anti-Semitic movement in Czechoslovakia and in the Soviet Union with the doctor's trial. Serge could have... He could have become a shockman or a... Exactly. Burnham. Right. Or he could have been inspired by the anti-colonialist movement, although he did not show great interest in that. You know, even in 19, by 1947, he wasn't talking about it all that much. So now, you know, even though I'm not, I just said not to talk about it, I mean, that's Sean, that's the way I, the direction I, that I say he would have gone, because this would have been, you know, the, the Slansky trial and the, the doctor's plot. This would have been it. What about a Johnson Forrest kind of post-Trotskyist figure? Yeah, you know, we we can't know. But you think he had, he had lost that by this point in time. Yeah. By the time he dies in 1947, he's he's lost whatever spark that is. That that while we're on that actually, um the you were describing the purges earlier. Uh and we all know that the quote-unquote old Bolsheviks were largely eliminated right. by the uh Stalinist regime at that point in time. It's interesting he loses faith when he gets to Mexico these last 6 years of his life or so. Um but he, he loses a very, very strong faith that came out of very intense political and physical struggle, you know, against the forces of counter-revolution and for the forces of revolution. I wonder if in some way, because Victor Serge is fortunate enough to make it out of the Soviet Union, unlike many, many other old Bolsheviks, if we can't imagine that his take on what had happened uh, in the Soviet Union and after if maybe that would have been become a consensus, you had all these other figures lived. If he was getting at something that would would be an old Bolshevik, ugh, old Bolshevik take uh, in the 1940s on what had happened with the consolidation of power by the state in the 1930s. Does well, because that could only happen though if he's able to reach an audience, and he really wasn't. You know, he was uh, was it. Uh, Politics, whatever Dwight McDonald's uh, review was. So he's writing for, for that pretty regularly. Uh, but these were all like small coteries in, you know, on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And so you're not going to get a movement unless it's going to reach a mass audience. And he was totally cut off from any ability to reach a mass a mass audience. But his disillusionment, though, is a reflection of the real failures of the 1917 project, right? Oh, absolutely. I, I guess what I'm saying is that had, you know, Zinoviev, had Radek, had all these folks lived and not been purged and liquidated, they too might have felt as Victor Serge felt 
during the during World War II and, and directly after it, because it was if if you're of his temp- temperament, if you're an independent, radical, um, anti-capitalist revolutionary who saw all these things, you you very much saw what happened in the 1930s as an epic failure of everything that you believed in. Except, except the people who were involved didn't see them as failures. You know that when. Uh, when people, when the huge numbers of people joined the French Communist Party, the German Communist Party, they didn't view anything that was going on in the Soviet Union as a failure. Oh, sure. I'm, I'm referring directly to it. It's a counterfactual, actually. What I'm right. trying to say is that Victor Serge could be a stand-in for, say, the left opposition in the Soviet Union, had they not been liquidated in the 30s, how a revolutionary might have felt if they lived oh, absolutely. another 15 yeah, yeah. years. Abs- right? Absolutely. I understand the, uh, you know, the, the deep, um, I don't know resilience of this uh of the soviet union as this sort of ideological linchpin in the the post-war area uh, era for sure and you can see why victor surge doesn't get the audience for all the reasons that you've talked about right and and you know the uh i did a an oral history of may 68 and i wanted it to be a fair book and so i interviewed communists for their what they had to say about may 68 and what was funny was they talked about, and they're still communists, still members of the, however small the PCF is, still members. And they talked about how, well, you know, we're not quite so concerned as we used to be about, about Trotskyism. Like, this was like a major victory that now that both movements are dead. Uh, <laughs> they can rest easy. They can rest, right? It's, it's fine. Trotsky is so fine because, you know, you, know you, could, you could fit like the entire French left in a phone booth. So, uh, The Communist Party still has that great hall. You know, the, the beautiful the modernist architecture. Oscar Niemeyer. Oscar Niemeyer. Oscar they, Niemeyer. They can sell that off and they can live off of it for a couple generations. Right. Ooh, that's a dark place to leave things. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I guess maybe we can just like wrap it up with talking a little bit about I think is interesting and relevant about Surge. Like, like for me, his story and, you know, like sort of the, the way that you put it is a makes a little bit more complicated, less romantic about him being two-faced and his negative opinions about the working class as a young person, but that's important too. But uh, I I think like the kind of heroic image of Serge is someone who was always willing to go where the struggle was and support it and push it to its limits. So somebody who was very, uh, in a way, optimistic and open and accepting of the struggle as it was and willing to support it, uh, which is the opposite of this very sectarian understanding of of a revolutionary who, if, if the struggle isn't exactly as uh, right or advantageous, uh, rejects it and criticizes it. Right. Uh, so, like, for example, the, the poem uh, uh, the, in, uh, in Spain, uh, even though these are more what we would call today Trotskyists, they were supporters of Trotsky, Trotsky rejected them because he thought they had, like, slightly the wrong line right. in the situation. And t- today still you'll see certain elements of the left rejecting the anarchists and palmists in the Civil War, um, for collaborating too much with the Stalinists or the Stalinists rejecting them because they didn't collaborate enough, mm-hmm. uh, justifying their you know arrest and their torture. But Serge was like, this is the vanguard of this revolution that's going on in Spain right now, and I support it, just like he supported the Bolsheviks when they rose up too. But then also there's a, a double-edged sword to this too because you end up going too far with something that ends up being counter-revolutionary and reactionary and leads to something like Stalinism. 
Um, so I guess th- this is like kind of the open question as people are trying to figure out their tendency today is how much are you going to be drawn in by questions of discipline and principle and how much are you going to be just open to whatever comes up? Well, no, I mean, you know, I mean, I want everybody to think that I, that I, I said Serge was duplicitous during that period when he was working for the Comintern. Uh, Which maybe is a good thing. Uh, it depends on your point of view. Yeah. Depends, and, and people will uh, will defend it because mm-hmm. you had to defend the revolution. It was the only, you know, the, the 21 countries and blah, 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 and all that stuff. And f- as for his, like, attitude towards the working class in his in his youth, in his individualist days, that was very much in the air, you know. Right. You know, that, uh, and it's a point of view that I think still has much to be said for it. It's almost like a Fabian society mentality of uh, well, the professional revolutionaries need to. Well, we, maybe it. we could do another discussion on that. One, but it, but it, but it's not professional revolutionaries. It's everybody on their own. Ah. Everybody on their own. So there's no professional revolutionaries. Um, but no. But what I th- what I think is admirable, and what I think is what if there's a lesson to be learned from anybody in the past, and from Victor Serge in particular, it's to not uh, the word you used, Sean, was ossified. Mm. His ideas when he his ideas never ossified. He was always willing to to see what the circumstances were, what the forces in play were capable of, and it's not opportunism. It's really knowing how to read a political situation in a radical way. This is what I take from it, and it, my take is connected to Andy's question and, and what you just said, is that uh, it seemed like he had this very independent mind. Uh, with some basic principles around democracy and obviously the the unjust, uh, injustice of capitalism and the modern world that we live in. And he was able to critically, critically analyze that and as seven tendencies that he went through, I think you named. But when it came down to it, uh, especially in the Bolshevik period, say what you want, he threw himself into the struggle wholeheartedly. So it, it seems like it's because he cared so much, because he saw the potentials there, 1917, 18, 19, and into the 20s, that he was willing willing to put, say, the principles of democracy to the side or even of truth-telling and completely throw himself into the struggle. So the combination of those two things, I would say that he's got the mindset, you know, whatever that means for you out there. Uh, Victor Serge had the Antifada mindset. Okay, but that also, plus, and maybe this is also the Antifada mindset, (laughs) is a deep pessimism for what exists. Maybe a a pessimism of the intellect. Um, And he was friends with Gramsci. Yeah, the, so I'm referring to this Gramsci concept of the pessimism of the intellect and the uh, optimism, optimism of the will. Right. Um, although maybe he didn't have the optimism of the will in, in 44. And <laughs> who can blame him for that? He had had, he had, had it at right. one point. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so the, this pessimism, uh, I think, can also be uh, an aspect of that openness, saying that, you know, as much as history is important and as much as we can respect the, these heroic moments in history— things aren't going to repeat the same way and we need to look for new forms of struggle, new movements to rise up. And maybe the things that we are optimistic about will, uh, <laughs> will walk again in a, in a new way that we can't imagine yeah. right now. Or that's, expect. that's the mindset. Yeah. And if I could just tell like one, you know, anecdote, personal anecdote here that as I mentioned, you know, briefly been working on a sporadically working on a biography of surge with Richard Greenman, who started working on it in the 1960s. In the 60s. So a lot of it is unusable because it's programs that we can't use anymore. And, uh, anyway, but we, I needed information on Gramsci and Serge. Did they know each other? What context did they have with the Comintern? 
And so I wrote to an expert on Gramsci who sent me some, some valuable information. And that ex, uh, expert on Gramsci, secretary of the International Gramsci Society at the time, was Joe Buttigieg. <laughs> who he passes it differently? But well, actually, I don't remember how how Joe pronounced it because I saw him give, you know give a talk. We met. We, the we pronunciation chatted. is apparently a false pronunciation oh. from, from father to son. And if well, folks don't know, it was actually Kamala Harris's father was the one that bought Victor Serge a ticket to Mexico. <laughs> no, 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 I'm kidding. No, that's no, no. a joke. No, no. And so and so like it, it's when you know just to bring this up to up to date. All I can think of now, you know, Joe Buttigieg was the editor of Rethinking Marxism, and he was a Gramsci scholar, and he's got to be spinning in his grave. And that's how I would like to end this, because I've been waiting for somebody to ask Pete Buttigieg the question, what about your dad? What would he be saying about this? Because I can tell you, as a father of somebody who's about Pete Buttigieg's age— I would not be happy. Enterprising listeners out there, there are Pete Buttigieg rallies all over this country. You probably live near one of them. At maybe half of those, there will be a question and answer session, and they are all being taped. So do us and our guest a favor by asking the hard question, what would Joe Buttigieg think of your behaviors? That would be great. All right, thanks for coming on, man. Great. Thank you both.